Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Kenny Arnott, the Chief Investment Officer and founder of Arnott Capital. We're talking to him about his hedge fund strategy that has performed exceptionally well. The fund has produced a return of 22% or just a little bit over 22% per annum since 2013 against the index or an MSCI of just over 8% per annum. So he's had a great performance over a long amount of time. Kenny gives us his view and experience on being a hedge fund manager, what he learned in 2020 through the COVID year, and what his outlook going forward is in 2021. I'm, I'm sure you'll find it a fascinating listen. I certainly did. Once again, please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and a reminder to listeners that this isn't specific advice. And I strongly encourage people to seek advice before making any or considering any investments. I hope you enjoy this podcast. As I said, I I certainly have really enjoyed recording. And in fact, it it sounded very much to me like uh, a good old school conversation with one of my mates from boarding school off a cotton farm. So I hope you enjoy. Kenny Arnott, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me, David. Kenny, perhaps you could kick off by giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself, who you are and maybe what sort of shaped uh, who you are as an investor. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So we, uh, we call ourselves asymmetric investors, which um, you know, really just means to us producing above average returns with below average drawdowns. And, and to do that, you need to find good investments and don't lose money along the way. So there, there were three things, I think, that have, have shaped how I think about um, investing, and most of them go back to my childhood, actually. I had a grandfather on my mother's side who was a famous aviator and navigator, and he was uh, Charles Kingford Smith's uh, navigator for many years. And I, I never met him, but fortunately he wrote a lot of books, um, which I uh, delved into at a young age. And he he did two things um, as a navigator. He, he studied the theory, um, but then applied it in a very pragmatic approach. And unlike a lot of his uh, earlier aviator peers who who died exploring, he made it through and had time to write all these books. And and I thought at a young age, that's that kind of makes sense, right? Let's let's learn the theory, but let's just apply things practically. The the second thing that definitely influenced me, I grew up on a cotton farm. And um, you know, I think farmers in general have to have an outlook on risk management, which is also very sensible because a large part of what you do is completely out of your control. And and I think that that has definitely sort of also shaped me. It gives you a, a sense of humility that things are going to happen that you never, you, you know, you never really planned for. So let's plan for things that are never going to happen. Um, it also strikes me that the meaningfulness of getting it wrong is pretty important in both of those instances. So in the navigation, if uh, your, grandf- your great-grandfather there uh, wasn't a good navigator, you may not be here. And if you're, <laughs> and if you're a farmer and you get it all wrong, um, you may not be there on the farm too much longer either. So uh, the consequences are reasonably meaningful. Yeah, they're high, right? That's, yeah, it's, that's right. And then the third thing, um, which probably shaped me more than anything, um, I got a job at a cotton trader and moved over to Memphis, Tennessee. There's a guy in the hedge fund industry who's probably one of the, 
you know, really the founding figures, Paul Tudor Jones, and I worked for his uncle. Um, and then I went across to California and I worked for a guy called Sam Raves. Sam Raves was really good, good friends with Stan Druckenmiller. And, and those guys introduced me to the concept of asymmetric investing, which, you know, is just about finding ideas with a lot of upside and not a lot of downside. I sort of came across this. I've got a bike and they, they marketed this bike as an asymmetric bike. <laughs> and the idea was um, because the cranks and the drive of a push bike are on the right-hand side, that the frame wasn't fully symmetrical like a normal bike is because the power's going down the right. So I you know, had to look up what asymmetrical meant and everything else. And, and of course, actually at Coda, when we advise clients, we often talk about asymmetrical risk and return. We talk about it, well, you know, if you look at a common equity or something widely known, um, you know, where it's widely researched um, and, and all the information is pretty much out there, the, the, the asset price and the risk and everything in there is pretty much priced into it, known about it, but there are sometimes transactions that happen um, and for one reason or another, the information may not be fully out there. There may be some sort of asymmetric risk return where you can get a better return for the given amount of risk um, or less risk for the same amount of return is the way we sort of talk about it. But is that sort of common in your thinking of how you approach it? Well, I think just to take your point on the bike, you know, we, so, okay, the index overnight wasn't all up, but the Russell was up nearly 3%. You're not going to hear anyone tell us, wake up this morning on the news and tell us the market was volatile last night. But I'll tell you what, if the market was down 3% last night, everyone's going to tell us it's volatile. Now, volatility is a symmetrical measure around the mean. It's not an asymmetrical measure, yeah. but we use it. Really, what we're saying is the market went down a lot last night and, yes. and we, we sort of substitute volatility for that. So, yeah, we definitely, you know, one of the key things about being an asymmetric investor is the first thing I do is try and disprove the thesis um, and effectively try and figure out all the reasons why I shouldn't invest in that idea or how much money I can lose. And then that, that, that forms our base thesis, less so than how much we're going to make. So tell us about Arnett Capital. How did so, it come about and what does it do? Yeah, so after, the, uh, after my cotton trading days, I came back to Australia and uh, moved to Macquarie for a while as a derivative commodity trader, then equity trader. And then I set up Arnett Capital uh, in 99. And just as a bit of trivia, in 99, there were option market makers known as registered independent option traders. And they were Deutsche Bank, Macquarie, City, um, and Arnett Options. So we were the, uh, I found the first genuine independent uh, equity option trader. That came about because a Dutch firm came out to Australia, Mears Pierce, and did a JV with, uh, with ANZ Bank. And that's, that's how I was able to get some funding to, uh, to start uh, trading options. Um, so that, that's when the opportunity strategy started all the way back then. Uh, I actually wasn't a very good option trader, um, but you know, really enjoyed looking for these type of investments. So you know, it, it kicked off then, and uh, we've been running since '99. Had a uh, had a bit of a sabbatical after '08, but you know, it's it's. Uh, I think it's worth re reflecting that if you if you do a really good job in producing these sort of returns, then what you should end up with is you should end up with a profile of returns which actually has a whole lot of volatility in the upside, and not much to the downside, and and. Ex 
you know, we, we had a couple of years off, but basically since 99, the worst year's been uh, down about 50 basis points. That mm -hmm. was in 19. So, you know, we when the markets were down a lot in the tech boom, down in 08, you know, we continue to be profitable. And then on the upside, we've had we've had some, um, you know, really spectacular years. So. so tell me what the fund does and what its mandate is and, and, and how big it is, for instance. Yeah, sure. So we... We go about finding ideas thematically. Um, so our approach to producing these returns is first of all, find interesting themes mm -hmm. and then invest in the best stocks in those themes. So all equities? Uh, we, we, are, we have an open mandate to, uh, to do anything. Predominantly, we are equity guys. Okay, and the objective of the fund is? The objective of the fund is to produce reasonable returns with low drawdowns. Okay, how do you define reasonable returns? Well, since 13, we've done about 22% in the MSCI Global's done about eight. I reckon that's reasonable. I think that's more than reasonable. I think um, most of our listeners would agree. <laughs> so so we, we try and find the themes, invest within the best stocks in those themes. Yep. And very, very importantly, we're always keeping an eye on macro for risks and opportunities to generate that return profile. And, you know... The, uh, back on the fund size, so the fund size now is a bit over 100. The, the evolution of our business has, has been threefold. I started in 99. We ran as a, as a proprietary trading business. We, we launched um, a hedge fund in 04, and, and that grew to be over a, over a billion Aussie dollars. Um, and then I ended up handing that, that money back, taking a sabbatical, and came back and decided to run a smaller business um, with a leaner team, and, and that's, that's where we are now, having enjoying markets. And, and what sort of lessons were you able to learn in 2020? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> but I think, I don't reckon you can consider, well, I, I can say the lessons that we learned in 2020 really had their roots back in previous crises. So, you know, let's go back, tech boom. 2000, the market fell 50%. We, we were using a lot more leverage then than we do now, so we wouldn't achieve this again, but we did 100% that year when the market fell 50. The, the thing about the tech boom was we had plenty of time to put on some really interesting shorts. And, and if there is a traditional bear market, that was it. In that, we had highly elevated stocks from a valuation perspective with highly elevated earnings expectations. And you made money because we had earnings compression and we had multiple compression. The other thing about 2000 um, was we didn't really have any central bank intervention. Actually, they were tightening to begin with, so you could argue they exacerbated the fall. So now we roll forward to 08 in the global financial crisis. Very different to the tech boom. You had you know, once that US housing market unfolded, you had very little time to adjust your portfolio. Uh, market fell 50% again, uh, and we did uh, positive 1.6% that year. Now, futures and, and index shorts that we put on were a big part of um, helping us get through that. The, the thing that happened in 08, which was new to us all in the market, unless you'd been involved in Japan, was, of course, massive central bank intervention. So now we, you know, now we, we back up to 20 and, and uh, you know, I mentioned that we're thematic investors, right? I just want to tell you a story about 19 because 
as a thematic investor, you, you sort of can't help but constantly be bumping over interesting risks and opportunities globally. And, and in April 19, I came across the outbreak of African swine fever in China. Mm -hmm. And it looked like at one stage it was going to decimate half the pig herd in China, which is important because they eat a lot of pork. And so we sort of scoured the world trying to find some beneficiaries and some guys that companies are going to be adversely affected, looking on to put in a bit of a, a, bit of a mix around that. Um, we played around with that for about three or four months, didn't make any money and, and ended up taking those positions off. So now we fast forward to January 2020 and when COVID, well, COVID didn't even have a name at this point, when it came around, it really pricked our ears. And again, just for the reason we found African swine fever, we, oh, this, is, this looks really serious. We actually put on a lot of shorts in the back end of January and got stopped out of those, which is probably pretty typical. I would say we're generally about six months early on, on a lot of our ideas. But what it meant was we were now on red alert um, for something that we felt was going to have a major solvency risk for the world. So we did a number of things. Um, we tidied up the portfolio, more liquid, smaller, less gross, less risk. You know, let's batten down the hatches for what looked like, you know, might be a little bit untidy. Um, and then as we, as we sort of moved into the crisis, thinking it's going to be a solvency risk, we, we, we shorted financials and we shorted a lot of index. We did pretty well in March. Um, actually, if you look at the first quarter, um, the, the MSCI was down 20% and, and we were up slightly. Now, the biggest lesson for us in 2020 really came from the GFC. And at the end of March, the, there were two things that happened. The, the Fed acted with magnitude and speed, which was quite astounding. And so that, that forced us to completely rethink what sort of environment we're in. Um, and, and we felt, well, this backstop, they're, they're going to backstop everything. Um, and I, I do recall this was a bit later, but, you know, they bought 28% of a trucking company, direct equities. Um, you know, so you start seeing that behaviour going on and you're not going to make a lot of money out of solvency risk on the short side. So we lifted all the hedges and we had a pretty good April. I think we did about 7% um, thereabouts in April as well. So, you know, for us, the, the lesson of 2020, as I said, was sort of had its roots much earlier, but it, it was really about being nimble and, and pragmatic um, back to the origins, you know, my grandfather, you, you know, you've, you've, you've got to, I think as a, as a market participant, you've, you've got to be flexible. You know, we've got to make a lot of decisions with incomplete information and, and, and that, uh, you know, that sort of helped us. You know, we got to the end of the year and, um, and everybody made a lot of money. We, we, we made a lot of money. We did 28%. We've had a, you know, a, a cracking year, but we worked really hard to get there. Uh, you know, it might have been easier to go camping for a month and be down 20% and come back and, you know, have no draw. And I think this is going to be really important as we look ahead because one of the overarching lessons that I, I've read time and time again from 2020 is don't sell. Well, that worked really well in 2020, but it didn't work in 08 and it didn't work in 2000. But it's going to shape our thinking now. We've all got behavioural biases and so we're all sitting here as we roll into the next market fall and we're all trained to buy and buy more on a 20% dip. So it's, you know, that could shape what happens in the next 
in the next untidy market. So, so what are the big themes looking forward that you're currently thinking about? Well, let, let's before we talk about those, let, let's just talk about macro. Um, because I don't think you can kind of have a view on what's going to happen going forward if we, if we don't sort of think about macro. And as we, as we look for, we obviously started 21, it started pretty well. It's, got, it's effectively got the trifecta for a good market. Um, you know, we've, we've got growth expectations. US GDP is probably going to be above 6%. Terrific. Um, we've got Fed backstop low rates forever. Terrific. And we've got fiscal support, um, you know, not only in the US, but globally, you know, of a magnitude that we haven't seen. And certainly those two ingredients of monetary support with fiscal support, we've not seen in the marketplace. I, I've never seen it. I don't know, mm. maybe you've got to go back after the Second World War or something to when we saw this. So terrific. Markets should boom. And, and <laughs> not surprisingly, a lot of people have that view. Um, and I think, you know, that brings me to the, what I call the sensible investor's dilemma. Um, you, when you get, you, you know, th this, this market has certainly a number of ingredients of a bubble. You know, we've got massive issuance, we've got massive valuations, we've got massive price momentum, we've got massive retail participation. All these things tell us that, you know, that these, these are bubble ingredients. It's pretty much every asset class, you know, if you're an Australian, your, your residential property um, is going gangbusters after everyone thought there was doom and gloom. That's it, right. In the middle of last year. It, there's pretty much not an asset class around that hasn't appreciated strongly in the last six months. No. No, that's, that's probably about right. And so, you know, the thing that we know from bubbles is is that you make a lot of money being long. And, and this is the sensible investor's dilemma because you, you wanna, you gotta navigate, and I think this is what is so challenging but so exciting about these times, is that you wanna navigate and you wanna outperform in the, in the back end of the, if we are in the back end, I have no idea where we're at, but it you know, it's, feels bubble-like. But a little bit of behavior like GameStop and some things come along, add to that feeling. Just add to it, right? Um, but on the flip side, and, you know, I, I remind us that markets have fallen, you know, I've, I've been investing in markets that have fallen 50%, right? And if the MSCI, MSCI Global Index falls 50%, rest assured, there are plenty of companies that are going to zero. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to make money at, while markets are in this very strong momentum phase, but then not lose it. Uh, you know, on, on, on the other side of that is, is challenging. You know, as someone once said to me, you're either going to look like an idiot before it falls or after it falls. And uh, you've got to decide where you want to be positioned. So, so I think that's, you, you know, that, that's the challenge we face. Um, how, how do we think about it from a macro point of view? Well, what, what I'd say is I think it's folly to try and forecast what's going to happen. We don't certainly have no skill set in that. We don't try and do it. What we spend a lot of time thinking about is what is, you know, what is priced by the market roughly and what is the market consensus thinking is going to happen and what things might upset the market. And let's just keep an eye on those risks. So I would say there are, there are four things at the moment. And, you know, bear in mind, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm an ex-commodity trader. I might change my mind tomorrow, but I can tell you today there's four things that I'm thinking about. 
the, the first one is if the Fed becomes hawkish. Now, we would all say the probability of that is, is, is next to zero, and I, I would agree with that as well. But you know, I can assure you, if the Fed becomes more hawkish, the markets are going to get very upset. Um, the second thing that I think is important is inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mentioned before, we've, there's quite a bit of talk around about inflation. Or the lack thereof. Well, there is the lack thereof, but you know there are some, you know there are some people suggesting we have ingredients for inflation. I, I reckon, again, I have no idea, but but I think it could be one of those things. You might find it creeps up on us. We don't see any inflation. We've still got a lot of a lot of slack um, in the economy. Um, you know, a little bit of inflation is good for markets, and a lot of inflation is not so good for markets. So that we just got to keep an eye on on that one. Um, the third one is investor sentiment, and you mentioned GameStop. You know, we, we, we like to apply theory with sort of pragmatic, sensible decisions, and, and our theory suggests that you probably only need 7% of turnover, probably I would argue in any market, but our analysis is predominantly in liquid equity markets. You only need about 7% of turnover to set the closing price. And that means the marginal buyer is far more important in actually driving where we are at the moment. And the marginal buyer, again, just sort of looking at the US, the marginal buyer in the US at the moment is probably, retail is probably 7% of the market. They are setting a price at a level that is not, probably not the way I would choose to buy. I, I, you know, I think I don't think they're necessarily looking at valuation. It's around story stocks and it's around we want to own this. And so investor sentiment is really important because what happens if that group of investors are no longer there? Well, I can tell you that my bid is significantly below where they are now. And so we've got to keep an eye on what's going on there. They look to be fully in charge and onwards and upwards. But again, it's a tail risk worth Worth watching. What is a signal for that changing and or how do you track that signal? Mm. Most of our indicators are completely useless because they're 100% correlated with what the market does. In other words, they're not leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Stan Druckermiller had a great podcast a couple of days ago and, and he quoted in that, I don't use VAR, I, I use the volatility of my daily P&L. And, and I learned that all those years ago, working for his friend Sam Reeves, that you watch your volatility of your P&L as, as an indicator of um, both you know, the ability to generate returns and also the ability to destroy returns. And so, you know, I, I think that we, we are, I'm a devoted disciple of the market and we watch a whole, whole group of things. I think ultimately you'd probably find that things stop working for that group of investors. And although we've got all the number of precursors, everything's still working for them at the moment. So I, I, I don't, you know, I can't say I can see it. Obviously, you know, GameStop was quite a unique example because for some reason, which I'm sure the regulators will now investigate, there, you know, there was a 140% short free flight, which is nonsensical, obviously. Mm. So, you know, it was a bit of, it was a, bit of a, a bit of a unique Example, maybe maybe that was just an one-off, and you know we're onwards and upwards. But there, you know, there are some 
you know, there, there, there are some real disparities in the marketplace. We really like Volkswagen, which is, you know, a terrific car manufacturer trading at a very reasonable valuation. And against that, you've got Tesla, um, which is trading at a valuation that, that I can't understand. And, and those disparities, are, again, are ingredients that we have, you know, we have some, uh, we may be close to when that marginal buy finishes. But Tell me how you manage your short positions. Um, you alluded to before about um, uh, the fact that COVID-19 sets your alarm off early and you got traded out and closed out of those positions. You were too early. Um, how do you, you know, for instance, I, when you talk about Tesla and Volkswagen, um, I think a lot about a lot of people in the market who have been short Tesla and how they've been traded out of that position. They may be proved right over, over time, who knows? But how do you, when you're constructing a portfolio, think about uh, managing that risk? Because obviously, you know, on, on the long side, if you get something wrong, the problem goes away. It's a smaller problem when you come in and look at the portfolio tomorrow. Um, if you get something wrong on the short side, it becomes a bigger problem for you. So, so what's your experience in how you're managing that and how you size your sort of exposure? Yeah, I, I mean, I would comment on that. Uh, I, I don't agree with that because it is obviously theoretically correct that your longs can only go to zero and your shorts can go up an infinite amount. Um, that may be true if, if the market closes for five years and you're unable to trade, but that's not in practice the reality. In reality, markets are open every day. Um, and, and, and we're, you know, we're open for business every day. And, and I would say that we're not going to sit here and suffer an infinite loss on either our longs or our shorts. Now, that's just our approach. So I, I think risk between longs and shorts for us, I, I see, you know, there are, there are obviously gap risks in being, you know, long names and short names. So that's the first comment. Our, our shorts, I categorise our shorts in, in two buckets, um, Ideally, what we put together is, is a nicely balanced portfolio of longs and shorts themes and stocks. And, and over a long period of time, that's, that's on average what we've done. Our, you know, our net exposure, when 2020, our net exposure was long 54%, so mm -hmm. certainly obviously not running, you know, uh, fully invested. We have some shorts against that. Um, wh what, we, what we will do is... If we can't find individual shorts and themes, then typically we'll have some sort of basket, which will be an ETF or an index that we use as a tool. And I mentioned in 2000, we had a terrific basket of short names. In 08, we just didn't have time to get organised. And in 20, we definitely didn't have time to get organised. So, you know, we, we, had, um, we had shorts in our book. And it's interestingly, it's interesting if you actually look at our correlations um, we are uncorrelated with um, global equity markets, we're uncorrelated with Aussie equity markets, we're uncorrelated with bonds, we're uncorrelated with gold, we're uncorrelated with commodities, and we're actually uncorrelated with other hedge funds. And I, I think that that was not by design, that's probably just um, by accident that by looking for these interesting themes and being um, very focused on downside risk, we end up uncorrelated. So. You know, we made the decision in about mid-2020 that we just didn't feel like we were going to get... You put shorts on to make money in an absolute sense, and you put shorts on so that when 
something unforeseen happens, you have some protection in your portfolio. That's what we do. And we felt that we just weren't going to get paid with these individual shorts. So we, I won't say we abandoned them. We have a very um, rigid funnel system of how our ideas, you know, they start out as a harebrained idea. And if they, if they sort of pass some cleansing tests, we go and do valuation work. If they pass some more cleansing tests, then they sit in what we call an invested bucket waiting to get in the portfolio. We've got probably certainly a growing list of shorts waiting to get into the portfolio, but they're not there because we just don't feel like the market ingredients are right. I think we, uh, I think I got you sidetracked on the fourth theme. We talked about the Fed. Uh, we talk about um, uh, invest, investor sentiment. Uh, there's one other there, but I think there was a fourth yeah, one. Yeah. Well. So look, the the fourth one is a relapse of COVID. Um, you know, we, I, I won't say that there's so much expert. There, there's so much expert um, literature around. Um, we, we don't profess to be experts on it. We're certainly. I think we're reading as much as anybody else. And so, you know, what we've seen is we've come out of the Northern Hemisphere flu season and rates have dropped um, according to the, you know, the seasonals that happen every year for a normal flu. That's all good news because that's happening right at the same point as we're rolling out a vaccine through the Northern Hemisphere. So, you know, I think we're all poised now. We've, you know, we've got leading indicators up in the 60s. They're not going to sustain that, but it just looks like we're out of the gates for 21 and we're going to reopen this economy gradually over the next few years. We're all going to get back on planes again and, you know, we probably won't spend as much time in the office. But, you know, I think that is the base case. That's consensus. That's what we all believe. And I'm just saying if for whatever reason that doesn't happen, that is, you know, that is not priced by the market. And, and more particularly, it is not priced by the cyclical part of the market. You know, that's where certainly, and we've got exposure to that. So, you know, we're, we're cognizant of that risk. Kenny, around some mechanics of your investment strategy and the, and the fund, um, you mentioned in 2020 you were 54% net exposed. What are you roughly at the moment and what has that oscillated between over history? Um, at the moment, we are low 60s. Um, we, we are what we would coin or the market industry would coin a variable delta bias. So we're not strictly market neutral and we're not strictly long only fully invested. You know, we will adjust depending on what environment we're in. So to give you an example of different environments, for the last two years, we've probably been running nets, I'd say around 50% net long. Mm -hmm. But if, if, we, if I could cast your mind back to 14, 15, it was a very different environment. There were, you know, there was... We're going, the economy was getting better, it's getting worse, getting better, getting worse. And that created much more of a mean, re, a mean reversionary market. Um, and and you, could really, you could really trade valuation bands. We weren't, we weren't like we are now where valuations just keep getting dearer, you know, more expensive. And so during that period, we actually went from extremes of 100% net long to 100% net short. And, and we oscillated that around and had some really good returns during that period. I don't feel like we're in that environment now. I mean, I, we're in an environment now where I'd like to run 300% net long. It's just I don't want to suffer the losses that are they're going to follow that when we fall. So, you know, we're trying to keep up with this bull market as best we can. And, Kenny, before I leave you, and you've been very generous with your time, thank you very much. Can you tell us, um, you, you talked about the sabbatical you had. Uh, what, what, what precipitated that and, and what did you learn over that period? And, you know, what did you do? Yeah, um, 
So we, uh, we returned 1.62% uh, in 2008. Um, that would have been amongst probably the best return of, of, of any fund um, and any hedge fund. But it was, uh, it was a tricky time back then. And we were, you know, it's actually worth telling this story because, you know, we made a decision, I made a decision back then which was the right ethical decision. It, it wasn't the right decision for the business. We were under a lot of pressure from our investors what we were going to do about gates, right? And gates are where you can lock yep. lock people up so they can't take their money out. And everybody was trying to get their money out in 2008 because everybody was losing a lot of money. And I thought about it and decided not to implement a gate. We, we certainly had a liquid strategy and we felt we'd be able to cope with redemptions reasonably easily. So I wrote an open letter to all our investors and said, we're not going to implement a gate. We have provision for it. We're not going to do it. And uh, we had quarterly redemptions on the next redemption cycle. We had redemptions of about 45% of the fund. And then we had redemptions in the next cycle of- uh, Because yeah. everyone was getting hit on their other assets yeah. and they needed that We, we weren't lying. This was an 08 yeah. theme, right? If you're in a liquid strategy, people need to get money. We, we were like the ATM, so they took it out. Yeah. So uh, look, I, I decided to sort of reflect on the business um, and uh, actually actually went back um, and did a, my old man was a farm manager. I said, I grew up on a cotton farm. Uh, he, he had originally been given a small block of land, which he had to sell um, when I was two. Anyway, I, I found a little bit of that and I went, went back over about uh, five or six years and bought it all back. And um, my mum and dad moved there and I went up there and spent a bit of time being obsessed with farming for a while. Um, and he died there actually. So, uh, so then I did that and decided that probably farming wasn't for me. I better come back to the markets, which is what I really enjoyed. Fantastic. It's a great story. Th thanks for sharing it. Well, Kenny, I think you've given us a lot of great information. I really like that story and I, I really like the, the strategy of the fund. Um, unless you've got any closing thoughts to leave with our listeners, um, I, I'm happy to call it there. But if you've got anything else, you get the, the no, last that's right. It. Terrific. Thanks, thanks, thanks Kenny. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.